the breeze. That's kind of strange. <laughs> <I know>. uh, <laughs> Dramatic anyway. impact here. Uh, Wait. Yeah. Oh, anyway, wow. I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And we're glad to be here with you again and, and cover these uh, controversial chapters. Oh, exciting chapters. I yeah, mean, gosh, there you go. You know, you got Genesis and Revelation, and then the next the next one is Joshua. That, that's, that goes right there in those super important books. Look, I think of the song all the time, Joshua beat the battle of Jericho. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, shall we jump in? Jump in. Go for jump it. Jump in. Make sure to hit your like button. All right. So the first thing we're going to examine is what is apostasy and this is just something when i typed it in on the internet we were we were talking about it earlier um when when we say a law of apostate cities um different people have different ideas with what apostasy is so if you go on the internet what it means is if you disagree with the religion i guess that you're part of then that's going to be defined as apostasy. So here is a map of different areas in the world where disbelieving what you've been taught can be anywhere from loss of child in, in a custody battle or all the way to the death penalty. And those areas in red, you can see it's, it's actually law that if you apostatize from a religion, then it is a death penalty. Now, here you can see... Um, well, that's pretty extreme. It is pretty extreme. And you have a whole group of people that are fighting for the right to freedom of religion or belief. And it is the fundamental... They state that it's the fundamental right of every human being, as stated in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that it includes freedom to change your religion or your belief and the right to leave a religion entirely and the right to freely identify with whatever label fits the individual, being atheist, humanist, agnostic, whatever. Although so, that is not a right in many countries today. Yes, it is not. And, and so when we're talking about apostate cities in the book of Joshua, is this what we're talking about? Are, are we saying that you have to believe the, in the God of Israel or else we wipe you out? And, and I think that some people actually think that. And that's why we're clarifying this right out of the gate. What is an apostate city? Because in God's plan, we have agency to believe whatever we want. That's not what we're talking about. If, if, if you are an apostate city, you've broken some serious laws. And that's what we're going to define here as we go. You can see here that even we're in... speaking from Israel's perspective. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and here you can see that not, not all of the uh, peoples in these different religions agree with this... Um, this put to death if you don't believe or if you become apostate but again it's a real thing in the world and so the reason i've tackled this subject right out of the gate is because i think that's probably the biggest issue that the kids have when we go into the promised land we go into joshua and and we find that they take out every man woman and child even the animals everything yeah. that breathes in some of these destructions and they're like that doesn't that's, seem right. That's not right. You know, what's going on? And so I want to get it super clear up front what you're dealing with. 
in um, John Welch's uh, essay that he did on law and war in the Book of Mormon, it's one of my absolute favorite essays on understanding what's going on legally with the wars and the laws. And note that according to biblical injunction, the Jewish army has to offer peace before launching an attack. And that's not what we're seeing in the book of Joshua. As a matter of fact, they're, they're kind of terrified and it, it's, it, you don't see them negotiating or offering terms of peace beforehand. So we have to define what's going on here. One may not wage war against a nation without first offering peace. And then we have it right here in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 98. This is the law that I, give unto my, that I gave unto mine ancients, that if any nation, tongue, or people should proclaim war against them, they should first lift a standard of peace to that people. So obviously what's going on here as they're entering the promised land is a different set of circumstances. Some more uh, laws are from Deuteronomy 20 that when you are come to a city that is not nearby, far away, that you are to proclaim peace unto it and that if they refuse that offer of peace, even then, you're not supposed to kill the women and children, just the men. So again, we can see that according to biblical law, this is a different thing that different we're a different circumstance that we're dealing with here. So in the yeah, law, it's always been somewhat uncomfortable to me because you know you just kind of look at it and you go. This does not really seem very Christ-like. Exactly, exactly, and that's why you know that's why it's the the, the class is named what it's named is because we're gonna hit we're gonna attack the elephant in the room right out of the gate here. So the law of Moses also required holiness in the camp. So just imagine our modern army and everything, and, and look at the criteria of the holiness that the soldiers had to have in order for God to be involved in the battle. It said that when the host goeth forth against thine enemies, then keep thee from every wicked thing. Well known from the Old Testament are several laws and rules and regulations requiring ritualistic and hygienic purity of the armies of Israel. The combatants had to be in a state of ritual cleanliness i.e. made holy, as in Joshua 3, verse 5. Which, in essence, is set apart. Set yes, apart by holy their, being defined yeah. as set apart. And in, in, in some of these cases, you know, I, I've read where they actually had mikvahs and, and dedicated themselves to the Lord. And it says that they were bound to remain continent and that this obligation of cleanliness extended to the whole camp. And they had to be kept holy if the Lord was to encamp with his troops. The reason was that the wars of Israel were the wars of Yehovah, okay, or, or Yahweh, however you want to say it. All right, and then on, in another category in um, Bro Brother Welch's paper, he says that you have to have respect for mankind in your conduct of war, such as Captain Moroni in the Book of Mormon, when he says to Zarahemna that we do not desire to be men of blood and we do not desire to slay you. And you can see again, that kind of seems to be the opposite of what's going on here in Joshua. So what's the difference? With the exception of the destruction of Ammonihah 
in the Book of Mormon, there is no evidence that the occupying forces of the Lamanites during most of their history either burned or destroyed the Nephite cities. This was only, you know, in the in the Wars of Annihilation at the very end of the Book of Mormon, but this wasn't policy during throughout the book. In um, as regarding the captives of the war, they had to be treated humanely. So Gigadoni led the combined Nephite Lamanite forces against the Gadianton robbers, you remember, in Third Nephi. And he commands his men that they should not spare any that should fall into their hands. By the way, so here, you know, you we have one of these rare commandments that you see where you can't take prisoners. And so what's the circumstance here? This was undoubtedly because of the nature of the war and of the enemy. The Nephites were not attempting to push another nation's troops out of Nephite territory, but they were battling against a band of robbers whose parasitic existence would always threaten the Nephite and the Lamanite security there. So if they were not eliminated... But even then, get this, I, I'd forgotten this in the Book of Mormon, but even then, they, did, they didn't obey. <laughs> they did actually take prisoners when they surrounded them. And you know, in every case you're going to see in scriptures, when they have an, a command to take them out and they don't, it, it will comes back. always come back around and, and they'll be sorry. In the conquest, if any distant city refused to submit, here's that verse in Deuteronomy 20, they were to take the women and the little ones and the cattle and only kill the men thereof in, in that situation. But note here that regarding the Canaanite cities in the Israelite territory, the command was to utterly destroy them. And you need to watch for the word utterly destroy because that is a covenant curse that is a legal term to have utter destruction declared on a city and that's what we're talking about here what makes an apostate city all right in uh the the like last as in ammonihah as in ammonihah and as in the canaanite cities and the land and the cities that they are commanded to totally destroy like jericho which was a canaanite city all right, so in, um, the other thing that we want to take a really quick note of is that the Book of Mormon is really careful to tell us about whether people get buried or not and how they get buried, which is kind of odd for as much, that, as much as they dwell on that. And hopefully you're going to be able to see why in just a few minutes. The Book of Mormon war records go out of their way to report the burial of the war dead and we what you want to take note of here is that the bodies of the people in Ammonihah were heaped up it specifically says that because again heaping up bodies or heaping up rubble when the the city has been destroyed is part of a covenant curse so let's go ahead and look at the actual law of apostate cities in Deuteronomy chapter 13, okay? It says, if thou shalt hear say if thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities certain men, the children of Belial, which is Satan, okay? are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, meaning that they've taken their loyalty away. They're trying to secede 
from the nation, okay? They say, let us go up and serve other gods which you have not known, thou which you have not known, then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true, and the thing certainly, if it's certain, if it, it really is sedition, that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. Note that it's a war that, that takes them out. And then it says, destroying it utterly and all that is therein and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword and thou shalt gather all the spoil of it in the midst of the street thereof and shall burn it with fire and all the spoil thereof every whit for the Lord thy God and it shall be an heap forever and it shall not be built again so again there's those legal terms that we're talking about. We've got utter destruction. Notice the heap of rubble that, that's created when it's done and that it's it's not built again. Sometimes in that's like for a period of seven years or or, or something like or never. But again, and it that burning with fire is symbolic of judgment and cleansing. I think in okay. the book of Revelation, we have that spoken of Babylon will never again. <laughs> now, uh, now you're uh, getting prophetic. Yeah, Absolutely. So it, that concept of, of the, it's the Babylon. It's the curse of an apostate city. So, yeah. It's, okay. So, we, we can see here the markers to look for. I mean, in some ways, this is like having a sentence in a court of law that you have capital punishment. And so what in the world can a city do to deserve capital punishment? All right, so now we are going to learn just a little bit more about the law of apostate cities, and then we're going to look at some examples. So here we can see that the law of Moses was concerned to assure national purity and unity, and that insurgency and sedition are apostate city judgment type conditions and we are told directly that the Ammonites in the Book of Mormon were plotting to overthrow the government. Okay, so it's a serious threat to the righteous government of the land. Secret okay? combination in a big way. Yes. All right, and then we also are told specifically about the city of Ammonihah that Satan had gotten great hold on the hearts of the people in the city of Ammonihah. So whenever in scripture you have a situation where there is an utter destruction taking place, you have to start saying, okay, what was the capital violation that had to happen? Because Heavenly Father is trying to save people. He's trying to save cities. And it's only in these extreme cases, as I've only been able to find seven in scripture where utter destruction was actually decreed. So here's a chart done by John Welch, um, kind of comparing the law of apostate cities in Deuteronomy 13 with what happened with Ammonihah in the Book of Mormon. And it said the certain men that are gone out from you, so the Nehorites are the ones that are trying to um, secede, from the government in Zarahemla, and that they withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, they re withdrew, and then they serve other gods. So they're turning 
from Jehovah. Why it says that they're children of Belial, and that's important. It means that they're, they're serving Satan, and, and that's not just like freedom of religion. That entails ritualistic child abuse. That entails sodomy. That, I mean, when you're serving Satan, that's a religion all by yourself. Okay? And that Satan had great hold on them. Yeah, like Baal. Like, like uh, Baal, yeah. And that they inquire, and, and then even then they're commanded to inquire and search diligently to make sure that they're informed correctly about this city. Okay? Alma will visit personally Ammonihah to verify. And then the curse is going to be that all the inhabitants are smitten with the sword. Okay, and that that we read in Deuteronomy 13. And in Ammonihah, we, we remember from the Book of Mormon that everyone will be killed. And you know, that might sound a little harsh until you remember what the people of Ammonihah did to the believers. What they were doing. Throwing yeah. the women and children live into the fire and everything. So when uh, the law of... Charles dis- Manson kind of stuff. Yeah, when right. the law of an apostate city is invoked, they have done some horrific things according to God's law. Now, when they are destroyed, there's to be no spoil taken from a situation like this. That is to become a heap forever, which we saw with the bodies in Ammonihah, and then it is called that 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 place becomes an abomination. Now, what's interesting for those who like Daniel, okay, uh, (laughs) that that it's called is called the desolation of the Nehors in the Book of Mormon. So we have an abomination of desolation here. So you could literally make a connection between the law of apostate cities and the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel in the Old Testament. All right, so what this is this is a big one that the kids have a problem with like in Judges. The very first chapter in Judges it says and Judah went up and the, do you see my cartoon? <laughs> King Adonai Bezek's not no good very bad day. Um, pedicure gone horribly wrong. Do you know what the story is? Enlighten me. <laughs> All right. And That's Judah it. went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they s- you know, slew that, of them. The in- Perizzites sounds like parasites. <laughs> That's probably by design. <laughs> the root of the word or something, maybe. <laughs> and, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, the king, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites, but as an Ibedic fled, and they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Okay, now, the kids are always like, what? <laughs> what about, you know, treating the captives right, you know, and all those laws that we read in, about law and war? Okay, you got to read the next verse. So look at the next verse. And Adonai Bezek said, three score and ten kings. Help the kids with that. Sixty. Sixty and ten. Seventy. So a total of seventy kings. Having had their thumbs and great toes cut off, had gathered their meat under my table, 
And as I have done, so God hath requited it of me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. This was a terrorist. This king of Jerusalem had some sort of sport of capturing kings and cutting off their toes and their, their big toes and their thumbs. Like feeding them to the lions kind of Yeah, concept. what yeah. I'm saying is if you see God calling a judgment on a person or on a city, you have got to know the Baptist story. There's always a reason because in every other case, the idea, God, God is the merciful one in war. Okay? All right. So, I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 15. We're going to go all the way back to when God makes the covenant with Abraham, where he takes the sacrificial animals, and they're in, they're in two pieces. Each of them are in two pieces. And then we have that flame, that torch, that glory of God passing between and make do, doing that Old Testament covenant that we talked about before in our Abrahamic covenant lesson called the covenant between the pieces. And if you remember that that meant if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may this kind of destruction happen to me. Except for in Genesis 15, we remember that Abraham never went through the pieces. He was sound asleep. It was God that passed through the pieces. It was God that made the covenant, which meant that it was an unconditional covenant. It would be kept. He would keep that covenant to Abraham and Abraham's descendant. And you remember there that Abraham has this horrible nightmare and he sees his posterity being taken captive into Egypt and slavery. But then he sees them delivered in the end. And all of this, the Lord says that they are going to be taken captive into Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So Meaning that at the time of Abraham, the land was not at a place where the law of apostate cities would be enacted. Right. Okay? So the, the trigger here to pay attention to is that the cup of iniquity, the iniquity is not yet full. Now, right. the, go ahead. I was going to say, we're going to get there in, in Judges when I kind of connect that. Yeah, you're gonna, we're going to see this playing all the way through Joshua and in Judges as right. well. Okay? So back in number 13, when the children of Israel have wandered in the wilderness now for 38 years, they've come back to the land, and um, at this point, the cup of iniquity is full. Okay? But if you remember, before they started wandering the wilderness, they were told by the Lord that he had given the land to the children of Israel. So not only at that time was the Amorites' iniquity full, but now we're 38 years past the time when God was ready to judge the Ammonites when they, when they very first came in, into the land and gave the evil report and said, oh my gosh, the giants were like grasshoppers. And the Lord said, 
you don't have enough courage and faith and to, to fight the battles that you're going to need to fight. You have to wander in the, the wilderness. This generation is not able to keep the commandments enough to take the promised land. But the point that we're trying to make here is that there is a pattern for destruction. God sends prophets to call the people to repentance. They warn the people of destruction if they don't repent. They People choose either to repent or reject the prophetic message, and then they receive the consequences. And the problem that we have here in the book of Joshua is we don't see all of that process. We only see that judgment is on them now. But the reality is that they're doing they're guilty of some pretty big crimes. So are you ready to look at the seven instances we have in scripture where utter destruction is decreed? Go ahead and read them off. The flood. The flood. Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah. The Canaanites. This is the Canaanites that we're talking about here in Joshua. Of course, then Jerusalem gets destroyed twice. Uh, yeah, the city of Jerusalem. Um, of course, they're, they're at, supposed to be living at a higher level. Exactly. That's so, why their crime is going to be covenant breaking, right? Right. Okay. And then the Jaredites, and then Ammonihah, and the Nephites. Can you think say. of any other ones? Um, maybe if I thought about it. Yeah, that minute. pretty well covers it in the scriptures. But what we want to do is we want to look at what the crimes are. Because I want to to make the the everybody sensitive to the fact that these things don't get these judgments don't come unless the iniquity has has is full unless these crimes have been committed. So the first one we're going to take a look at is the flood, and we're actually told why God sent the flood in the Pearl of Great Price in Moses chapter eight. It says that the earth was corrupt before God and it was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted its way in the earth. So a lot of people have speculated that they uh, messed genetically with They the, were messing genetically and, and, and not only that, but of course in all of the heinous uh, activities that they were having um, immorally with beasts of man and, and, and all, all kinds of corruptions of what God ordains in the scriptures. So it says right there in your crime for the flood that it was full of violence and corrupting the way of the flesh. Okay, so that is the, what the crime was for the flood. All right, let's take a look at Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to go ahead and read that one? Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in a like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Hmm. <laughs> and set Similar. forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also... These filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Can we all say ouch? Yeah, that's uh, a little too close to home. Yeah, and, and look what it calls. It, it says that these people who don't want to be governed but believe that they can do whatever they want and that there doesn't need to be law or order, that they're called filthy dreamers. And that they defile the flesh and they despise being told what to do. They despise dominion. Yeah, we can't hardly, we can't hardly 
separate from right now the whole concept that we are told that good would be known as evil and evil as good. Mm -hmm. Things are being turned so upside down that it's hard to recognize the values that we originally aspired to. For our country. And, you know, I probably don't even need to say this. But, you know, obviously we're supposed to be measuring our state today with what these crimes are. These crimes by which the Lord can do an utter destruction judgment on a city or country. Okay, let's take a look at another one. The next one is the Canaanites. This is the one what Joshua's going into land. What was the crime? Go, you want to read it? Go ahead. Okay. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God have given thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter to pass through fire. Pause right there. Kind of a... Because that would include, that that was killing the children. Right. And you don't Mark. have today, we don't have to pass them through a fire to kill them. Yeah. Okay. Or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch. I, so we're, I hit this a little bit when we went through Deuteronomy. This is a cult. They're, or a they're heavily into the occult here. And I'm not just talking about, you know, a cult being a group of believe, people that believe a certain thing. We're talking about satanic ritual abuse of animals, children, and everything that goes with the worship of Satan. Okay, so keep going in verse 11. Or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or wizard or a new new combat necromancer boy that's a word i didn't know for all that do these things are abomination unto the lord and because of these abominations the lord thy god doth drive them out from before thee okay and so again we are talking about a civilization that was ripe for destruction 38 years previous to now Okay, we are talking about nations or cities that are passing their sons and daughters through the fire. That is offering them alive into a fire. Okay, so when when these destructions get declared again, it is not without cause. Okay, all right, so let's take a look now at Jerusalem, why Jerusalem is going to come under condemnation and get an utter destruction declared upon it. And it shall be if thou do all, excuse me, do at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you. Okay, right there. I testify against you. So this is a covenant. This is testimony for curses or blessings depending on you and the nation which the lord destroyeth before your face shall ye perish because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the lord your god so would it be just if god fought the battles for them cleared the land out because they because of their sins and then the people of god that god Cause to win the battle, do the same thing. He says, as those nations were destroyed from before you, 
that will come on you. Yeah. As a covenant curse for for doing that. And so again, you can see that that Jerusalem is going to fall under that covenant curse more than once. Okay, the next one we are going to do is going to be Ammonihah because I got these two backwards when I did the slide. But Ammonihah, we're going to find in Alma. And just like we read, look what it says in the text. Yea, and I say unto you that if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, that you would even now be visited with utter destruction. Utter destruction. That's your apostate city curse. Yet, it would not be by flood, as were the people in the days of Noah. Why? Because the curse is, it's going to be by sword, by famine, pestilence, and the sword. There it is, right there, straight out of Deuteronomy 13. But it is by the prayers. This means that Alma knew very well the laws of warfare, according to the Torah or the brass plates. But it is by the prayers of the righteous that you are spared, and now therefore... If you cast out the righteous from among you, then will not the Lord stay his hand. But his fierce anger will come out against you and you will be smitten by famine. Here we go again. And pestilence and the sword. And the time is soon at hand except you repent. By the way, Ammonihah is going to be wiped out in about four months after Alma makes this decree. And now behold, I say unto you that the foundation of your destruction. So what would lay the foundation for this type of thing to happen to a city? Of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. Too many ouches. Yeah, I was just going to say out again, right? All right, so now let's take a look at the Jaredites here. And here with the Jaredites, we have um, their, their crime is going to be secret combinations. And verse 23 in the book of Ether, chapter 8, absolutely says that we're going to be dealing with the same thing in our day when we receive the, the people that received this Book of Mormon. Okay? The secret combinations originally from the time of, 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 that, of Adam's son Cain is called the Master Mahan Principle. And basically there are three principles. This is from Hugh Nibley in his book. He says that the first one is life for money. So whether by murder or, or secret combination or, you know, selling somebody into slavery, whatever, your life equals money for me. And if you remember right, when Cain slew Abel, he said, I will now get the flocks of my brother. Okay? Mayhem. And Master Mayhem, right. And then this one I think is, thought was fascinating. This one is, I am free. That means... I am free to do whatever I want to do. I am not governed by law. Okay? And so that, that's basically what that, that one that was saying that they despised in Sodom and Gomorrah, that they despised um, their, and, and spoke evil of their rulers. Okay? And then in number three of the principles of Master Mahan are, am I my brother's keeper? Meaning... It doesn't matter what I do to humanity. It doesn't matter if I sell drugs to an eight-year-old or if I have sell someone into slavery. I'm, I'm not my brother's keeper. You know, top dog wins type thing. So these, these are your basic core principles 
of secret combinations. Okay, so let's take a look at Ether and see what it says about the Jaredites. You want to go ahead and read that one? And it came to pass that they formed a secret combination even as they of old, which combination is the most abominable and wicked above all in the sight of God. For the Lord worketh not in secret combinations, neither doth he will that man should shed blood, but in all things hath forbidden it from the beginning of man. And that almost seems like an oxymoron, yeah, right? Because here he's telling to wipe him out, and yet, but here, here's the thing. With secret combinations, they're shedding blood for their own gain, to make their own money. You notice the, it's the opposite when Heavenly Father takes out a city in judgment. They are not to take a spoil. They are to level it and then then have it a heap that is an abomination and not even to be touched for for a, however long it is that it sits that it's going to be commanded to sit there all right so our last one is the nephites what did the nephites do and of course you probably all remember from moroni that they were without civilization in moroni chapter 9 he it says, O oh, my beloved son, how Mormon speaking to Moroni, O oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization? So I don't think they were this way. In the next verse, it says they were civilized people. But because of the wars and because of everything that's happened and because they haven't turned their hearts to God, instead they've hardened their hearts, it's now just going downhill. But, oh, my son, how can a people like this who delight in so much abomination? Oh, the depravity of my people, they are without order and without mercy. So you see here, God wants to be merciful. He doesn't declare judgment on apostate cities without cause. And they have become strong in their perversion, and they are like brutal sparing none, neither old nor young, and they delight in everything save that which is good. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me, for I know that they must perish, except they repent and turn to him. And how many times are they given the chance to repent and to return to him? The scriptures say that when God has to declare destructions like he did at the flood, that he's weeping and grieving in the scriptures. Notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. Therefore there was blood and carnage spread throughout all the face of the land. And I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. And of course, this is a heartache because according to the Book of Mormon, this is one of the greatest warnings on our land today, is that we repent before it's too late, or we will be swept off the land. We will receive the same utter destruction that the Jaredites and the Nephites did. Now, of course, we know in Scripture that there is a remnant that's going to believe, a remnant that's going to stand, a remnant that's going to stand for God in the storm and I pray with all of my heart that that's you and that that's me and that we will stand for God and for Jesus Christ in this land. 
All right, this is a slide where we remember back from Numbers that the 70 elders were prophesying in the temple, and you love this when Joshua says, well, what about Eldad and Medad? They're prophesying out there, and they're, they're not with us over here in the tabernacle. And, the, and Moses says the, the beautiful, beautiful line from Numbers chapter 11, would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them and that they could all prophesy. Now, the reason we brought that up is because we were remembering that under the Sinai covenant, what was, what's the big hard cruncher for the Sinai covenant? Back to those laws of purity and, and that you have to have when you go to war. They have to be righteous to a man. all the way to the last person. And if there's one soldier, one person sinning, God can't fight the battles for them unless they repent by purging out the sin that's among them. Okay? And so enter Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember the story? Well, he took spoils. Well, they go to fight the battle of Ai and they lose. And 36 men. When we're fighting battles where nobody is, is killed, we now fight a battle and 36 righteous men are killed. And Joshua goes into the tabernacle and he rends his clothes and he dusts and him and all the elders and they're just weeping for before God and, and they're actually saying, God, what are you doing? Why why has this happened? If if we lose these battles, then all of this is gonna make all of the, the wicked cities all rattling together to wipe us out. And, and your name is going to be obliterated. What in, is happening? And the Lord answers Joshua and he says, this is not me. This is you. There no. is someone among you who has broken the covenant. Now, if you remember in Jericho, because for two reasons, number one, because it was an apostate city that was to be utterly destroyed. And because they didn't destroy the gold and the silver. Remember, it said that the gold and the silver were supposed to be taken to the tabernacle. And that was because this is the first battle. This is one of the largest cities. This is the stronghold of the Canaanites in the land of, of Canaan. And this is the first battle. And when you pay your tithing, you pay it on the first 10%. And so the tithes... Just like Melchizedek paid tithes when he battled with the five kings, he paid tithes to Melchizedek. The battle, the tithes were to go for the gold and the silver from Jericho to the temple treasury. And in Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of Achan. And of course, does Achan come out and confess that he does this up front? No. Absolutely not. He doesn't. And so remember that the judgment that's going to come on him is number one. He doesn't confess until he's caught. And, and there's a difference between <laughs> confessing and repenting and telling the truth when you're caught red-handed. And so Joshua is going to be told to draw lots. And um, in, in the book of Gosh, it's Psalms or Proverbs. I can't remember which one, but it says that the, the lot is the Lord's. 
And so in the Old Testament, we have them drawing lots to, to decide what to do in situations. Yeah, Jonah in the well. Jonah, some, yeah, you'll see it you throughout the Old Testament. But what's going to happen is they're going to draw the lots and it's going to narrow down from the tribe to the family all the way down to Achan. And then Achan is going to confess that he stole the gold, he stole the silver, he stole a, a fancy garment, and that they were all buried underneath his tent. And now Achan and Israel is going to take Achan and his entire family and they are going to do to Achan the law of apostate cities. The thing that had happened to the people of Jericho is going to happen to him because he didn't keep, he broke the covenant with God. And remember, God said, if you don't keep my covenant, if you become wicked like them, then what happened to them is what's going to happen to you. And so that is why Achan, everything, his cows, his, his horses, his everything, his whole family, they're going to be killed. They're not burned alive, okay? They're, they're killed by the sword. That's the law of the apostate cities. And then the whole thing is put in a heap, and it's burned, and it becomes an athema. It becomes an abomination. And this is what Israel will do to Achan. And a lot of times the kids are like, well, this is harsh. Well, tell that to the family of <coughs> families of the 36 righteous men that were slaughtered because he did that. God is very serious about his laws of war. He's not going to fight your battle if you're just as wicked as the people that he's supposedly going to be fighting against for you. Now, sometimes I've had kids say, well, wait a minute, this isn't right. The family does, shouldn't suffer for Achan's choice, right? Did you ever oh, hear anything like that? Time. Yeah. Okay, so I've even heard, and this is actually a quote from one of my classes. Wait a minute, I don't want to suffer for my brother's choice? Okay, now you think about that. And on the one hand, that is a righteous principle that we are all accountable for our own sins. But here's the thing. What if Jesus would have had that attitude? Okay. In order to be a deliverer for other people, and think about this about your judges, all of your judges in the book of Judges, all of your 144,000 in the last days, all of your heroes in the book of Joshua, your Caleb's, your Joshua's, your, they had to be willing to take on the people as a whole and to be willing to suffer with them and to do whatever it would take to get to the place where the whole could be righteous to a man. And one time I, I, I tell the kids this story um, you remember the movie Prince Caspian from your Narnia series? Sure. And you've got King Peter. And then, of course, you know, in the Narnia series, King King Peter, he's he's just a son of Adam. He doesn't think he's anything grand or, or, or that these prophecies could be about him um, at the beginning and everything. And even towards the end, when the prophecies are starting to get fulfilled, he doesn't feel like he can be a, a king that could lead 
all the people. And then Aslan, who's a type of Christ, tells Peter, don't go to battle against the wicked city until I tell you to. Okay, now just just imagine Joshua and the Lord saying, go to battle when I tell you to, because, you know, it's going to be critical that they are righteous to a man and that they follow God's law specifically, no matter what he says to do. I mean, can you, can you imagine being there in the board meeting when they're telling him what to do with Jericho? March around the city once a day and be silent. Don't say a word. Let them all taunt you. Let them do whatever they're going to do. You don't do anything. You march around one time for six days. And on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then everybody shout. And that's going to conquer the greatest Canaanite city with walls so wide you can ride chariots around the tops of the walls. And that's going to take them out. They had to be righteous to a man. So back to the Prince Caspian story. What happens is Peter kind of gets panicky and he decides that Aslan is taking too long and he's got to go to battle before Aslan tells him to. And so, of course, you get it. He's going to go to battle and it's a trap, right? And so in this battle that, that King Peter is doing, he's got all of these you know, the, the greatest warriors of the, all the different families of animals and Arnie and everything, and they're all there to, to keep the, the law of the king and to go, and they, he, he leads them into a trap. Now, all of these warriors, they know that if, um, if King Peter doesn't make it out of that city, then the prophecies can't be fulfilled. And so they know that their top mission, once they realize it's a trap, is to get Peter out of the city. And so what you have is you have them start jumping in front of the arrows. Because they're all trying, of course the enemy is trying to take out Peter. And they're all jumping in front of the arrows. They're all trying to stop him. They finally get him to the gate. He barely makes it under the gate. And the gate barely crashes down. And all of the, right, all of the warriors that have been all laying their lives down trying to get him out are stuck on the other side of the gate. And he's riding away and he turns and he can see them all being slaughtered at the gate. And he knows it's his fault. And what is what I tell everybody here is, you know, at this point, this, I'm sorry, I, I get about, I, I, yeah, it was, it was rough for me when I watched that because at this point, Peter becomes king. He realizes it's not about him anymore. It's about the people. Okay? And he realized that people have laid their lives down for him to do his job. And it's not about whether he can anymore. It's about he must. And so the reason that touched me so much as I was watching that scene, I was just I was just wondering, our end time deliverer, our Moses figure that comes there to, to battle against the Antichrist or the king of Assyria in the book of Isaiah. Do I have to make it to Zion or would I be willing to stand at the gate and take an arrow so that the children could make it to Zion? Right. You know, it isn't about me. It is about Zion and us as a whole 
and the overall goal. And when you when you kind of see that, you realize that Achan's mindset was so small that he would endanger all of Israel for some gold and some silver. Anyway, so there's a, that's a different way to look at that story of Achan and and what is going on there and why they had to they had to take the sin out so that the Lord could fight their battles again. All right, now we've kind of talked about this before, but the story of Jericho is just astonishing when you see the parallels between Joshua and the book of Revelation. And then you get to the 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 amazing fact that all of this is written for us because it replays in the end time and the inherited lands that Israel was reclaiming for God in the book of Joshua is the exact same thing that's happening in the book of Revelation when God's people are taking back the promised lands for Israel that tyranny and injustice will be destroyed and that righteousness will reign in the earth again. And this is a total parallel to the book of Joshua. And just to show you, let's just go through a bunch of them really quick. Number one, in chapter one, Israel is dispossessing the wicked people out of the promised land. Jesus Christ will dispossess the wicked kingdoms of the world at the second coming. You've got 10 battle, 10 nations to battle. Joshua has 10 nations to battle when he enters the promised land. There are 10 kings to battle in the book of Revelation. Now look at this. When in in the book of Revelation and Daniel, of those 10 kings, three of the horns are taken out, right? That's Daniel chapter seven, right? where where the there's 10 horns but but they take the, the the horns seven of them get together and take out three in the book of Joshua King Sihon King Og the giants and the Amalekites that were in Exodus 17 have already been conquered when Joshua goes into the land and when he goes into the land he's going to fight an alliance of the seven kings that are left. They're the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, and the Gergesites are going to be the seven nation kings that he has to battle when he goes in. Of course, there's seven crowns and the, uh, the ten horns go down to seven when they take out three. And then we are reconquering the promised lands. And this is so cool. In Samuel, when we get to King David, he, he frees the people in a certain order from the nations that have, because they didn't destroy all the nations, right? We, we're going to learn that in Judges. They, they didn't kick them out. And so they made treaties with them. And, and um, only one of the tribes actually did cleanse their land. And that was Canaan, of course. And then, um, so what well, you're going to have David trying to reconquer the lands because they're being oppressed. But in Isaiah chapter 11, the servant in the end time, this 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 uh, descendant of Jesse, called uh, called the sprig of Jesse, he is actually listed as conquering all the lands in the exact same order that David did. 
it's a, absolutely in parallel there. All right, so there's your seven nations. Here in chapter five, we have Joshua. Of course, Joshua is the Hebrew name for Yeshua. Yeshua, which is Jesus in the Greek, same name. They have to go into the wilderness. Notice that in the end time in Revelation, the, the woman, the church, the bride, she is in the wilderness as well. Notice the second time when they come back after 38 years in the wilderness and they go into the land, how many spies do they send this time? Don't recall. Two. Two. And, you know, some people say, well, that's because, you know, two was enough to, to give the right report the last time. So they're not going to send all the... No, I actually believe it's because there's a parallel. You have two going into the promised land in Joshua. Guess what? You got two witnesses going to Jerusalem in Revelation. You've got the two witnesses go into a harlot's house, Rahab, and they rescue believers. The two witnesses in Jerusalem go into, remember that the harlot is turned against her bridegroom and they're going in to rescue the believers. Then you have 12 men chosen and a memorial forever, all from the different tribes. Same with the 144,000 coming from the 12 tribes. When you've got the crossing of the Jordan River, you have the hand over the sea or the river in Isaiah chapter 10, you have the angel stand and his hand is over the sea, meaning the servant or the hand of Moses or this end time servant is over the sea, the chaos, the, the, the Antichrist, the king of Assyria. Look at this, just the parallels, they go on and on. Seven priests in Joshua, seven angels in Revelation. Seven trumpets in Joshua, seven trumpets in Revelation. Seven days in the battle in Joshua, seven years, a week of days, uh, did I say that right? A week of years in the end time, the seven years of battle. Isn't it fascinating that while they're marching around the city, they have to keep silent? In Revelation, you have the half hour of silence before the trumpets sound. Then you have the trumpets sound with a great shout. You have the great voices in heaven. Jericho falls. Babylon falls. Jericho has first fruits. There's first fruits from these battles in Revelation 14. Joshua has the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. That's what they called the place where they had um, the execution of Achan. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the end time. You have in chapter 10, they're going to go out and fight the, uh, the they're actually the kings in the land. Um, the Gibeonites are going to um, kind of pull a fast one on them, pretend like they're from a far country because Apparently, they've done their homework. They know that if it's a far country, they won't get totally wiped out. And so they're like, we're from a far country, and we really want to make a truce with you, yeah, a treaty. Yeah, and, and you know, it, 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 they, Joshua forgets to ask the Lord about this one, <laughs> and he makes an agreement with them. And what's amazing is throughout the rest of the Bible, God will keep and honor the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites, even though they were dishonest when they made it. Once a covenant is made, a covenant is kept. And there's going to be some fascinating stuff with the Gibeonites here because the, the kings in the land, when they find out that the Gibeonites made a treaty with Joshua, then they're like, hey, Gibeon is the next biggest city next to Joshua. Let's take out Gibeon because they're in league with the Israelites. 
And so they go to attack Gibeon, and the Gibeonites tell Joshua, um, remember we're your pals? <laughs> and so Joshua actually marches his men all night long. And now you've got all five kings. This is actually going to make it easier for Joshua because you can take all five of them out at once. And you have the battle with the Amorites here. And this is going to be that famous battle where the sun stands still. And we could do a whole hours yeah. on speculation on what that might have looked like. But, the, but it would be speculation. It would be speculation, but not that it happened. Right. Because it did happen. It's, it's The how it happened. The how it happened is speculation. But here again, however it happened, there's hailstones. And it says that the hailstones take out more of the people than Joshua. And they would have to. I mean, it's five armies against them. Okay. And so you have armies being taken out in the Valley of Gibeon. Because remember, they were all going to attack Gibeon when Joshua comes to save the day. Um, they... Um, the, the hailstones take them out, and it says it in Revelation 16 and 8 that hailstones are, are going to be there taking out the armies at Armageddon. You have five kings that flee and hide in a cave. Guess what? Revelation, they hide in the caves. Okay? In, um, in Joshua, they're going to allot the inheritances of the land after the battle. Guess what? In Revelation. New Jerusalem and the allotment of the inheritance right there. You have angels asking how long. And then, of course, you have Joshua saying the thing that he's probably the most famous for, which is choose ye, finish it. Whom ye shall serve. But as for me and my house, there you go. I will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. And then you have the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And then in Joshua, and this is critical. Think about this for the end time. This is critical. How many times does God tell Joshua and the people that they are to march into that land, do exactly what he says, and be courageous? In Revelation. Or in other words, have faith. Fear none of the things which you will suffer. This is a picture of the, um, the, the tabernacle. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, they will go around once around each day of the Feast of Tabernacles with their lulavs. On the seventh day, they go around seven times and do the great Hosanna shout. Guess what? Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Just in case you thought we were making all this up. It's right there in the prophetic rehearsals. Here it is in Joshua 10 that there will not, God tells Joshua not of all these five kings that have all come to attack, there shall not a man stand before you. And there is a great slaughter at Gibeon. And this is going to be important because, again, this is going to play out in the end time. Isaiah predicts similar end time instances of cosmic upheaval as an integral part of God's cleansing of the earth of its wicked inhabitants. And again, this is going to be a judgment, a judgment on the earth as an apostate city. Check out Isaiah 24. It starts out in the very first verses. The earth is being judged. 
because its inhabitants are wicked. The cosmic disturbances coincide with the God's day of judgment coming upon the earth. And then here it is, if um, right in the text of Isaiah, we've kind of shown you here a, a page um, from Isaiah Illustrated. It's chapter 28, verse 21. And look what it says. It says, the Lord will rise up as he did on Mount Perizim. Perizim means breaking forth. And this could actually refer to several times when the Lord broke forth and did a destruction like when Korah rebelled against Moses and, you know, they drew the line and then there was the earthquake and the fire on the side of the rebellion. It also, David is going to fight a battle where, where the Lord is going to break forth here. But here it says the Lord will be stirred to anger as he was where? In the Valley of Gibeon. That is Joshua 10. That is when God extends the day and fights the battle with hailstones or meteorites. Okay. All right. We're going to, we're kind of taking a while. So I'm going to go a little bit faster. Well, let's skip over this, but you can read it in the book uh, in chapter 28. But also it says something really interesting right at the end of that verse. It says that God will perform his act, his unwanted act, and do his work, his bizarre work, or his strange work. It says in the King James Version, the reason it's called that is because in this situation, God is actually, just like with Korah, when Korah rebelled against Moses, it was God's people rebelling against God. And so God calls that a strange act a bizarre act, a hard thing for him when he has to judge his own people. After the Israelites learn to keep his law in the wilderness, God will fight their battles as we go rest of the all the way from chapter 13 all the way up to like 23. There, It's all about the different tribes fighting the battles that they're supposed to fight as they inherit the different pieces of land. And in this case, like, like I said before, Caleb is going to be the only one who actually defeats the cities that he's supposed to take out. And the rest of them are going to kind of, I don't know, what, think they're smarter than God? Think it's, it's better to, to make a... Apathy, a, probably. I don't know. They, you know, we're in control now. Why keep fighting? Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and the valleys and the springs and all their kings. He left none remaining, but there it is again, utterly destroyed. All that breathed as Jehovah God of Israel had commanded him. And Joshua smote them from Kadesh Barnea, which is down in the south and the um, west, the south of the west. And then uh to Gaza. Gaza is going to be up in the north by the Golan Heights and everything. And all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And basically Joshua took out all the main centers so that they had control of the land. And everybody else was supposed to go in and inherit and do the mop up that, that God commanded them to do. All these kings and their lands Joshua captured at the same time because Jehovah God fought for Israel. What will that look like in the end time? It says in Isaiah that two will put 10,000 to flight. Sounds like 144,000 doing big time commanding of the elements and stuff. Yeah. I know this is going to be just a tiny bit over today, but I want to show you some 
absolutely astonishing stuff that's going on in these sites that are in the book of Joshua that have been discovered. And these are A sites. It means they're not even in question. And there is so much biblical evidence coming out to prove the Bible today. And you would think that that would settle everything, right? You would think, but... Okay. So... One of the reasons that a lot of this stuff is repetitive in in the five books of of Moses that we've been studying, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and some people actually call Joshua the sixth book of Moses because it's when everything gets fulfilled that was planned out in the first five. But the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book, is actually designed as a covenant. It is a covenant treaty the entire book you can see that it has all the laws that are specified in a covenant and it has the rules of warfare and engagement that are all specified in a covenant treaty and then the blessings for keeping the treaty the blessings and the curses that the book of deuteronomy ends with and the reason this is important is because after jericho as the children of israel go into the land they are going to go between two mountains you can see that there's going to be mount gerizim and then there's mount ebal and then there's the city of shechem in the middle and what they do is that they have priests that are on Mount Ebal, priests that are on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is calling out the blessings. Mount Ebal is covering, calling out the cursing. And Israel is passing between these two mountains. It's the covenant between the pieces. The same one that Abraham did in, in Abraham 15. The same one that they did when they crossed the Red Sea. The wall of water on both sides. They covenant between the pieces. This is when a people make a covenant with God and their curses and their blessings are being shouted out from both mountaintops so that all Israel knows being led by the Ark of the Covenant what covenant they are entering into to be God's people to bring justice to the land and to keep God's commandments all right so again Red Sea we saw it with the crossing of the Jordan River the same thing they set up the 12 stones there's actually a covenant between the pieces at a threshold covenant when you go through the door. Okay, so there it was a Passover and a circumcision is a threshold covenant. It's a covenant between the pieces. They cut the foreskin away and the, the person is between those two pieces and they become a covenant son of God. And of course, Joshua's whole, the all of them will be circumcised before they go into the Battle of Jericho. Again, the whole, all the soldiers, everyone, righteous to a man. Okay. They found it. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen stuff like they, that. We know where Joshua's altar is that was built on Mount Ebal. And I, I, it's, a lot of people were looking for it on Mount Gerizim, the blessings. But again, this would have been an altar where they were offering sacrifices to atone for the curses. So it, the, the altar is actually built on Mount Ebal. You can see in the bottom right-hand corner that there's the city of Shechem, and it goes between the two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. This is Joshua's altar from an aerial shot today. Now I want you to look at the greenish area around the altar because this is the part that blew me away when I saw this, okay? 
And this is all recent, like in the 2000s that they discovered this, this, okay? So first you need to know what Gilgal is. You remember that they camped at Gilgal when they crossed the Jordan River before they attacked Jericho. So it was on the eastern side of Jericho where they had camped Gilgal. The city of Gilgal is actually going to be about eight miles north. They're going to establish a city called Gilgal. And there's actually been a lot of debate for a long time of what city is Gilgal because there's a lot of places called Gilgal. So just think of a common street name in your area. You know, no matter what state you go into, everybody's got a Washington street, you know. Right. So Gilgal was fairly common. And they've, they've done a lot of etymology on the word, and it kind of means stone circle. Okay, so you could have a lot of places called Gilgal if they build an altar or a stone circle. This is the wall around Joshua's altar. What does it look like? What does it look like? I'm not sure Take what you're guess. looking for. A hilltop. A, no, the, the white, the yellow. What do you think it looks like? Viewers say that's a shape. What shape is it? I don't know what you would call it. It's a footprint. It. Interesting that you would call it a footprint because I was seeing a... <laughs> Well, get this. Uh, torso. What were you seeing? I guess this is kind of like cloud watching. You know? What do you see? You know? No, I saw I saw a footprint immediately when I when I looked at it. So I thought you would too. But you can see that it's not only a footprint; it's a right foot. Okay. So the stone wall is kind of in the in the shape of a footprint. They found six of them so far in Israel. Six footprints. Giant. Footprints. Yes. Okay. Now watch this. this. Read some scriptures really quick. Placing one's feet on an area is symbolic of taking ownership. We're right? With that. So God says to Abraham in Genesis 13, walk up, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. Okay, so you're that's in early America, you used to have to walk around your property, you know, and that that was your, your claim. Yeah, okay, the walking through the land makes the land Abraham's. A similar process is evident in the opening of Joshua, where Yahweh commands him, Prepare to cross the Jordan together with all this people into the land that I'm giving the Israelites, every spot on which your foot treads, I give to you as I promised Moses. That's from Mount Sinai. Right. I'm There's carvings that. in the rock, the footprints, because yeah, that's, that's the, the land marker. But get this. This is God. This is supposed to be God's footprint. Claiming the land. That's what the scholars are, are, are coming up with. Look at this in Isaiah 66. The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Footstool. Okay. What, where could you build a house for me? What place could serve as my abode? All right, I'm just going to read the scriptures really quick for time's sake. This is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of, the my, soles feet. of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Psalm 99, exalt Yahweh our God and bow down to his footstool. He is holy. Now, Okay, this is Tel Gilgal. So this is going to be not Camp Gilgal, that they camped outside of Jericho. This is going to be when they actually set up the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be in Tel Gilgal for 369 years. Okay? That's longer than America has been alive, right? For sure. By a long shot. Anyway, Tel Gilgal is going to be where Samuel is uh no that's that's shiloh the, anyway this is where it's going to be there's like 35 references to this place 
that's about eight miles north of Jericho in the scriptures here. But check, check it out. It definitely looks like a footprint. The tabernacle was in the middle. Yeah. Okay. They have found six of these in Israel. And they all have walls <clears throat> built around in the shape of a footprint. Now, they're actually trying to get these places protected right now. And just so that you know, you can see one of them right there at Shechem, where the children of Israel passed between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. They actually buried Joseph's bones there, okay, on the side of a hill. And they, it was a fairly well-known site. And um, anyway, the Israeli Defense Force actually withdrew because of politics and everything like that. And they withdrew. And now listen to this. Today, the tomb of Joseph is located on the east of modern Nablus, which is Shechem. And October the 7th, 2000, Joseph's tomb, the third most holy place in Judaism, was destroyed by Muslims. It is located on the east side of modern Nablus between Shechem and Sikar at the foot of Mount Ebal. It has come under attack, and the Israeli defense forces withdrew after gaining reassurances from the Palestinian Authority that they would protect the site in accordance with their obligations under the Oslo Accords to protect holy sites. Two hours after the withdrawal, the Muslims began destroying the site. It was burned and torn down stone by stone and then bulldozed. It was immediately declared a Muslim holy site. One of the tombs whose location is known with the utmost degree of certainty and is based on continuous documentation since biblical times. And notice the heap hmm. that they made right there. And there it is being destroyed. All right. The last thing we're going to do before we close is really quickly take a look at the cities of refuge. Because a lot of people think that's so kind of weird. Because you remember that Levi, the tribe of Levi, didn't get an inheritance. They got 49 cities uh, within the, the right. different inheritances that were given, right? And um, here again, we're going to just review that everything in the law of Moses was a type of Christ, right? So check this out. In the city of refuge this is this is galatians the law was our schoolmaster the law of moses to bring us to christ okay and then of the 49 cities of the levites 42 cities were given to the levites from each tribe six were designated as cities of refuge so that's 48 cities and then there's going to be jerusalem the messiah is designated as the consummate fortress for refuge so there's just your scripture that says that jesus is our city of refuge Okay, so do you remember the the law of the cities of refuge, what that was about? Virtually, yes. It was about, like, for instance, in the case of, like, manslaughter, you could, uh -huh. you could go there and wait and be protected there as long as it was not an intentional act. Right. So they didn't have police force. The one that was to execute the cr criminal would be the, the avenger of blood, the, the, yeah, the family, family member that was going to avenge. And he basically had to race to get to the city. And then once he got to the city, they didn't have to let him in unless he could convince the 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 leader of the city that he was it was an accident he you right. know and then they'll let him take refuge in the city right and these were called cities of refuge and you can see that they spread them all the way out around um Israel so that they could, anybody could run 
to the city if they were in trouble. Okay, and then the the names of the the different cities are actually very meaningful as representatives of Christ. The holy place carried on your shoulder. You can have fellowship here. Okay, you that were in exile is now going to be safe here. Um, it is the heights and it is the gold. And of course, Colossians says these things are all <coughs> a shadow of things to come. So, get this. Types of Christ. The cities were divinely appointed. Right. The cities were for the guilty. Right. Is there any of us that are not guilty? The way to the cities was clearly revealed and known. As a matter of fact, they had every year they had to repair the roads so that these cities were accessible. The cities of refuge were accessible to everyone. Do you remember when we were in Hawaii? There was. There was a city. There of was refuge a city of in, refuge in there on the island. Yes, for the, Lord. In their culture, they had cities of refuge. Yes, the same kind of thing. Where, where someone who was not, there was no refuge for someone who intentionally committed the crime. That had to be repented of. You but know this where that was, was. Yeah. Where was it? Well, particularly that particular one was what we called two-step. It was just off to the side. Of, I, I can see it, but I yeah, don't know where it was. It was just off the side of what they called two-step. It was just a little south of uh, They Kona. actually gave tours of it and everything, yeah, too. Yeah, we actually we went there. there. And did you know uh, another one was right where the Laie Temple is? Oh, I did not know that. I'll tell you the story after. Oh, that's so that's cool. cool. So they have cities of refuge in the Polynesian areas as well. Yeah, very fascinating. That's cool, yeah. Okay, so the city of refuge was to be entered without delay. Okay, you had to hurry to get there. And the cities of refuge were the only hope for the guilty. Yeah. So all of these scriptures, you can see that these are all um, images of Christ. But this one's the big one. All right, the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of refuge, whither he has fled. And he shall abide in it until the death yeah, no, it's of so, the high priest. It's so typological of Christ there. The death of the high priest is the deliverance of... But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made without hands. So, you know, it's something that would be so weird, like, oh my gosh, when the high priest dies, you know, I've thought about this, I thought, whoa, gosh, if you didn't want to be stuck in the city of refuge, maybe you send somebody to kill the high priest, you know, that would be horrible, but, you know, yeah, but... Then you got another person. I know, that you're, that then you're weird. <laughs> but the point is, is that, Without the imagery of Christ, without putting Christ in the middle of it, it's weird. You know, when the high priest dies, everybody goes free. Unless you understand the atonement of Jesus Christ. Right. Beautiful. Okay, so Israel has possessed the promised land. And now the people are going to do what's right in their own eyes. And I think you're going to explain why that is not a compliment. Right. Yes. And the covenant curses are going to begin to go into effect as we go into the book of Judges. However, that is next time. Yes, this is your next lesson that Pharaoh is going to show, teach us. And we're going to see that Israel is going to begin to have a loss of God's protection because she can't keep righteous to a man any longer. Won't. Won't. Yeah. And we are going to enter in to the time of the Judges. And this is going to happen because of transgression 
of the terms of the covenant and that their enemies, remember the curses, by the sword, if you... you yeah, it's like, it's, the, it's like the return, you know, or the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the balance of the deck, so to speak. Right, yeah. right. I'm having a... And, and that will be in the next lesson as we dive into the book of Judges. And I hope this has been a blessing. So thank you. It's been great. We hope that this has been beneficial. Sometimes these books in the Old Testament are out of our paradigm because it's not culturally exactly the way we... <laughs> because we think we're so much righteous, more righteous than they were, right? <laughs> and so we, we look at that. Although in, in the early days of our country, we adhered more closely to a lot of these concepts. Anyway, thank yeah, you. We'll more into that in the book of Judges. We'll see you next we'll time. We'll see you next time. You guys have a great week. Thank you.